Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and if there is one phase of life all but guaranteed to make you realize just how out of your depth you are, it is parenting. You're barraged with dozens of decisions, from whether to swaddle, to sleep train, to breastfeed, and so on, and you have to decide what to do now, all while in a sleep-deprived state. And the consequences of choosing poorly seem so vast. It's 2 a.m., your two-year-old is struggling to draw breath, you take him in the shower, steam it up to help them breathe, but you have a, you're faced with this, this, a decision. Do you rush them to the emergency room because it's actually a life-threatening complication of a serious illness? Or is it just a bad case of croup and you'll feel stupid for overreacting in 15 minutes when it resolves? How do you know? Parenting is a constant churn between sheer delight, mind-numbing tedium, and existential dread. Our guest today has a better way that we can approach these kinds of decisions. Dr. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of two New York Times bestselling books, the latest of which is Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you for having me. So uh, to start, Emily, can you pick a topic, walk us through the mental thought process that you encourage parents to go through when encountering a parenting decision? So um, so let's take something sort of sim- simple like swaddling, um, which, you know, there there are people who will tell you like swaddling is super important and helps your kids sleep. Uh, and then there are people who will tell you like, no, actually, you can't swaddle because it will ruin your kids hips um, or some other thing or it's not nice to them or mm-hmm. something, something else. Um, so what I what I suggest parents do is sort of a like a two-step thing. First, really like look at what the data says. And so in the case of something like swaddling, you know, what I do in the book is really go through like, does swaddling actually seem to improve sleep? How good is our evidence on that? And in that case, the answer is yes. And that our evidence actually pretty good, partly because it's easy to watch the same baby swaddled and not swaddled and to get a sense of, of you know, why they sleep better and whether they sleep better. Um, and then, you know, once you have that data and you kind of really know like what is what are the benefits and what are the risks which in that case are basically there are no risks um, then you know think about making a choice that that works for you now in something like swaddling you know there it, it's not super complicated in the sense that once you see the data it tells you kind of this is something that's going to help your kids sleep better and uh, and it doesn't have any downsides so on the one hand it's not like you have to swaddle on mm-hmm. the other hand it's probably a, a good idea but then there are a bunch of other things in the book, you know, including some much more fraught topics like uh, like sleep train, like sleep position, like do you co-sleep with your baby, mm-hmm. where I think it's it's more the evidence is more mixed. And once you see the data, then you really want to think about, you know, where are my family's preferences? I have to combine this data with some understanding of what's important to us and what are the kinds of risks that we are comfortable taking to make a decision that works for us. And what that means is that for a lot of these things, the same data is not going to not going to lead families all to the same decisions. One thing I appreciate about your book is this sense of, uh, look, there we we need good data uh, and better information will help us make better informed decisions. Uh, But. There's variables that are going to be different from person to person, like you mentioned, family preferences. Um, and I really appreciated that that approach. That there's not necessarily one hard and fast rule on some of these on some of these issues. I mean, there there's some where the data is a little more overwhelming, where uh, the downsides are so slim and the upsides so large that it's hard to imagine it not being a good decision for most people. 
But that ambiguity, I think, was was useful after surveying my own share of parenting books where there's lots of thus saith the parenting expert, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, that attitude, like sort of like there is a right way to do it and it is this and it is the right way for everybody is part of, I think, what makes some of these parenting stuff so anxiety provoking because people are so sure that they are that they are right and that they are so right that it must be the right choice for everybody. And so then when they come to, you know, people come to give you advice, it's not like, hey, this is what worked for me. You might try it. But like, this is what you have to do, because if you <laughs> don't do this, you're going to make a terrible choice and then your baby is going to suffer. Your, your baby is like one of those Romanian orphanage children. You're exactly. scarring them for life. Like you're yeah. scarring them for life by everything. <laughs> Basically, everything you do could scar them for life. Or if you do the other thing, it also could scar them for yeah. life. So there's no winning. Yeah, it leads to kind of uh, uh, paralysis to, to yes. some extent. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, now, I, I did have a qu uh, question. So uh, why it, does it feel like – and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm off base with the presumption. But it does feel like uh, information uh, in p behind a lot of these parenting decisions is relatively inaccessible and not as well distributed in, in the population as information is the kind of baseline information in other domains. So like, it, it, is it worse and why is it worse than say learning how to manage your finances? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, there's a few things. One is that the, that the data is, is sort of not, the data is often not as good. Um, you know, it's, it's, the kinds of information that we want, the kinds of data that we want here really require, you know, people to make different choices with their kids so we can compare them and see different things about them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you could say the same thing about finances, like, you know, to see if it's a good idea to invest in index funds. We need to see, like, some people who invest in index funds, people who don't. But there's mm -hmm. actually also some, like, raw truth there, which is just, like, what if you had invested in index funds? There's, like, an actual answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in this case, you know, parents make different choices. It isn't. Uh, it it isn't always so easy to infer from the from the data what actually is uh, is is the truth. And I think that kind of the fact that we're really dealing with behavior and not just the kind of behavior of financial markets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that's part of what makes these data so challenging. Okay, so now I'm going to get you to help us think like economists when it comes to parenting. And there's a you're actually quite good about not overlading the the book with jargon, but there are a few things I want you to walk us through. So, in the book you talked about thinking through constrained optimization. What is that and how does thinking like an economist about that help someone approach the trade-offs involved in parenting? So when so when we do economics and we sort of think about people, uh, our base idea is that people are optimizing so that they are trying to make choices about their behaviors or about their purchases that are going to make them like as happy as possible. That's their goal. But we almost always uh, give our people some constraints, right? So on the one hand, like I want you to be as happy as possible, but you have a budget. So even though the thing that would make you as happy as possible is to own like six Gulfstream jets, yes, please. Um, actually, uh, you can't have that. <laughs> so really, you know, we're going to give you some amount of money and then we're going to think about your choices in that. Maybe you only get one jet um, or maybe no, could be no jets, <laughs> could be none. Um, so that, that this idea that people are making sort of optimal choices under, under constraints, that's kind of a key underlying principle of economics. Mm -hmm. We think about it applied to, to parenting. Um, I think you know we we sometimes will sort of 
frame things as like, how do I optimize? Like, how do I do everything the best? What is like the, the sort of most safe, best, you know, I should be both engaging in play with my kids at every moment, reading mm-hmm. to them at every moment. Also, I should boil all the water to make their formula. Also, by the way, you shouldn't make formula. You should just breastfeed. Also, you should pump all day at work. Also, you should, you know, your kid should sleep in exactly the right way, even though, you know, even if that means you never sleep. And I think that a lot of that discussion ignores the idea that people face constraints, that there's a limited number of hours in a day, uh, that you can't actually do all of those things if you literally haven't slept at all. (laughs) And so some of what I talk about in the book is sort of about sort of thinking about, okay, there are some constraints and you, maybe you are not going to be able to do all of these different things in exactly the way that everybody says that you should, you should do them. And you may have to pick which of these things are most important. And that's where I think the data can be super helpful because a lot of our recommendations do not come with advice about, with information about like how important is it to do one thing versus the other. Mm -hmm. Once you have that information, it's easier to say, okay, you know, with the constrained time and there's constrained attention and constrained money that I have, what are the best choices that I can make? Mm. Okay. So our choices are constrained. Uh, We're all facing trade-offs and maybe the choice isn't between me playing with my kid or that kid watching an iPad. I mean, that it's not like one's replacing the other. I have to get ready for work my kid has to do something. So yeah, or well, even even something. I mean, in that example, it's like maybe the choice is like the only way for me to be able to make dinner is for my kid to watch a half an hour of TV because I can't actually cook with my kid like crawling all over me. Mm-hmm. But you, so I could order takeout and then I could not have them watch the iPad, or I could make dinner and they could watch the iPad. Yeah. But you've told me both. It's very important to have healthy home cooked food and that my kid cannot watch the iPad. I literally cannot do both of those things. <laughs> and it's like. And so that's it. You have to choose one of those things. And I think we often don't recognize that you're, you just, you may have to make a choice. Now, so I get constrained optim- optimization. Uh, there's another term you throw in it uh, later on in the book uh, about talking about thinking like a Bayesian um, versus I think it was a fre- frequentist. But uh, what does it mean to make parenting decisions like a Bayesian? So, um, so I talk about this in the, in the context of, of TV, but I think it actually comes up, comes up a lot. So, um, so there are different ways to incorporate, uh, data into your, into like what you think is a conclusion about some relationship. So, um, so the, the example I give is about SpongeBob and reading. Um, so let's say that there is a new study that comes out that says that that watching SpongeBob SquarePants um, helps kids learn to read when they're very young. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, let's say that's the only evidence we have. There's only, amazingly, only one study <laughs> in my imaginary world that has been run on that important question. It's very specific, it, that one study. Very specific, <laughs> very specific. And let's say, you know, it shows big effects. If you're what we call a frequentist, somebody who basically is going to use the, only the data that we have to draw conclusions, you would kind of be forced to conclude that SpongeBob teaches kids to read. If you're a Bayesian, you want to take that data, but combine it with what we call your prior with some baseline belief about the relationship. Mm -hmm. And in that example, you probably do not think it is very likely that SpongeBob is going to affect kids early reading. So it's true that like when you find some new data that shows that it does, you should move your what we say, move your prior a little bit. It should change your beliefs a little bit. But since your beliefs are already so strong in the direction of that cannot possibly be true. Uh, when you move your beliefs a little bit, you probably still don't think it's true. And so, you know, I talk about this in the context of, of like sort of thinking about evidence on screen time, where unfortunately our evidence is very, the actual evidence that we have is very limited. 
Um, and I use this as a frame for sort of how can you um, how can you conceptualize what is likely to be true? Like, what are your priors about about what is likely to be true? And and that that may help us think about that that choice. And and in particular, you know, your prior is probably that like watching nine hours of TV a day is not good for your kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching, you know, like spending twenty minutes on on an iPad three times a week is almost certainly fine. And so, of course, like it would be great to have data about those, but actually our priors are pretty strong in those cases. And then there's some space in the middle, like is an hour of TV too much? What about two hours? Where really it would be great to have more data because I think that our our beliefs are kind of mixed on that and it's it's hard to know what the the answer is. And so we, we could benefit more from more data. So you've written written first here about pregnancy and then parenting, and that makes me wonder how that shifted how you think of human rationality. And 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 here I want if you could touch on the divide between like classical economists and behavioral economists. And it's an easy distinction to overstate, but there can be a distinction between this emphasis on people as either rational or irrational actors. And I know I think. Uh, uh, both you and your partner are economists. Your parents were economists, and I think uh, at least one of you was a behavior has behavioral economics uh, uh, training. So, has this experience of writing these books of parenting changed your view of human rationality? That's interesting. So, I mean, just to like sort of give a little bit of, of kind of how I see the the background a little bit of this behavioral stuff. I mean, you know, when I was in graduate school or really like late in college and like the the sort of like 2001 kind of space mm-hmm. uh, there, I would go to the there was like a very clear idea, like behavioral economics was like something that was very separate uh, from it was like a kind of economics, you know, where like we were like moving away from the idea that people were totally rational. And it was like a really like there were there was a behavioral seminar in grad mm-hmm. school. And, like there were people like doing that as their as their field. And I think part of the the like tremendous success of, of behavioral economics over the period since since then is that, you know, that I'm not like people do sort of think of it as a as a field, but not in the same kind of like very separate mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people whose work uh, sort of touches on behavioral economics or tries to use ideas from that uh, to think about to think about data or to interpret to interpret the things that we're seeing in the in the data. And so I think that's um, I think those distinctions have uh, have blurred a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um and I think we've gotten more comfortable with the idea of of sort of thinking about people as um, as kind of non uh, as non rational and and with really trying to focus in on the the places where they're so non rational that it really changes the the things we see in the data as opposed to you know everybody's a little non rational right mm-hmm. um, but sometimes it's not sometimes it's not quantitatively important um, you know when I think about about parenting I you know I do think there's an there's an experience when you're when you're a parent which is it's kind of like inherently uh, like inherently not, not rational, um, <laughs> like in, and inherently just like you kind of can't believe how much you care about this thing and also how difficult it is to, um, to make, um, uh, make choices that you, even choices you kind of know are, are right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's, it's just like very difficult to, to, to do that, um, when they are, when they are hard. Um, and I, you know, I, I, so I, 
even, you know, and even things like sort of your, like the investing now for, for benefits later, I find actually very difficult in, in parenting. I think a lot of people do. It's very easy to be like, oh, I'm just going to like give into whining right now. Um, but I think it also reinforces like some of the thing the sort of key principles of economics, like incentives matter, mm-hmm. right? Like you kind of know, uh, you know, it's easier, it's easier right now to give into the whining, but then, and then, you know, deal with it later. That's kind of like what we'd say, like present bias. Like I want to, I don't, you know, I'm discounting the, the future. On the other hand, it's like such a crisp illustration of the idea that like you're, if you, if you indicate to your, if you provide your kid an incentive to whine by giving into them, they will definitely whine more. So kids are like a good illustration of economics for sure. For our listeners who, um, haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the differences between, you know, uh, blind, uh, double blind studies and uh, observational studies, et cetera. Can you tease out some of the distinctions that you make in the book when it comes to evaluating the evidence? So you've got different kinds of trials, different kinds of studies, and you've also got the issue of correlation versus causation. So um, unpack some of that for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I think, you know, in all of these places the basically what the thing we are trying to aim for is an understanding of like, if I do X, will Y happen, right? So is there a causal relationship between this thing that I'm going to do with my kid and some outcome that I, that I care about? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are different ways you can, you can study that. And so the kind of best way, the, the most causal, wonderful way that we all love is some kind of randomized control trial, which would work by, you know, taking parents and kind of randomly having some of them do one thing and some of them do another thing and then comparing the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And if you've chosen who does what randomly, then any differences in outcomes you can attribute to the, to the treatment. Um, And there are some things where we can study them that way uh, in in parenting. Uh, There are not a lot of things like that. Um, And I think you can sort of see why that would be. It is because people do not like to experiment with their baby. (laughs) Um, So we have – so there are a lot of uh, cases where all of our evidence is going to be uh, from what we would call observational data, where you where people make different choices and then you compare the outcomes for for the people who make one choice, the people who make the other choice, um, and that's like there's those sort of fundamental like correlation versus causation problem with those with those studies, which is that the people who make one choice are different from the people who make another choice, um, and as the choices get like in some sense more and more important to people, that may be more and more true. So in something like breastfeeding, like the differences between people who choose to breastfeed and people who don't are enormous. They're like really, really big. Uh, women who breastfeed tend to be more educated, tend to be richer, more likely to be married, more likely to be white. Like there's tons of differences between these um, between these groups, many of which also relate to the other kinds of outcomes we're interested in, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. studying. Uh, and so one of the things that I think I do much more in this book than uh, than than maybe would be true if I were not an economist is is to say, okay, within that category of observational studies, there are some which are better and some which are worse uh, related to the question of how good a job they do at adjusting for these differences across uh, across people. So in the case of something like breastfeeding, like you have some observational studies where we just kind of compare the two groups and maybe we adjust for differences in the education of the mother, Mm. you know, or differences in her age and her education. And that's kind of it. And then you have other studies where we compare siblings, where one sibling is breastfed and one sibling is not. 
And so the, it's true. Those are both observational studies. Um, they both, you know, are not randomized, but it's a lot better if you can compare two kids with the same mom who were different, who, one of whom was breastfed, one of mm -hmm, whom was not, mm -hmm. to comparing two kids of totally different moms, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how worried are you about differences? Like, sure, there are probably some differences. Why, why was one kid breastfed and one was not? That's like a good question, but that's awfully, that's much, much closer to the kind of experiment that you want to run than the just, you know, controlling for a couple of things. And so a lot of the, the kind of work of the book really is within this very broad category of studies, trying to isolate the ones that do, do a better job of, of separating out correlation and, and causality in places where we simply do not have randomization and where probably we will never have a, like really good randomized data. Hmm. Uh, so now we've, we've laid some of the kind of um, structural backbone of the book uh, and the economic economics-based thinking and data-driven thinking behind it. Uh, a few specific questions about some of the content. So um, we're a tech and innovation-focused podcast. Is there, like, is there, if you had to, uh, under coercion, pick one area that you studied while writing the book that you think would be most potentially productive for technological innovation uh, to dramatically improve outcomes? You know, if we threw venture capital money and the smartest engineers in, in the country in Silicon Valley at it, what would be that area? I mean, I, I harp a little bit on in the book on like breastfeeding technologies and particularly pumping technology, which is very poor mm -hmm. um, and very annoying. Um, and, you know, we've had some innovation in um, – you know, like, like hands-free pumping, but even in things like just, you know, storing, cleaning, like the, the kind of mechanisms that go into like making that work, mm -hmm. it's like incredibly complicated and annoying. Mm. Um, and so that is a place where I think we could use more, uh, we could use more tech. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of what, of what else, I mean, you know, everybody is always sort of talking about different kinds of things about baby, baby sleep, although I'm not sure that, uh, that technology is is so well suited to helping your baby uh, baby sleep. I guess there's the snoo. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. How, I don't know how to comment on that. So I, I'm going to go with like with breastfeeding as being like a big thing. Oh, and the other thing is, do you know about a quarter of kids uh, are like don't don't poop in the potty? Really? Getting back to our discussion of yeah, or like huh. in like are are potty trained for um for for urination long before bowel movements, mm. like you know, and it's like of course it's there's a name for it. it's called stool toileting refusal, um <laughs> and so if if there's some technological way to like improve kids' willingness to use the the toilet, that'd be awesome. Did you come across a convincing explanation while you're researching these topics for why both infant and maternal mortality rates are so much higher in the U.S. relative to other developed countries? So, I mean, the, the question of infant mortality is something that I've that I've actually worked on in my academic work. Um, and I think, you know, there um, I'm not sure I, we have so much of an answer, but I think that. Um, that one of the things that we that we sort of pulled out when we looked at the data comparing the U.S. to um, to a couple some places in Europe uh, is that uh, the the issues in the U.S. seem to arise in the second 
like in the kind of period from like a month to to a year. Mm. So we often separate uh, infant mortality into neonatal mortality, so it's the first 28 days, and postneonatal mortality, which is the period from a month to 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 one year. Oh. Uh, and the U.S. actually pretty good in the first month um, in terms of of actually having fairly low neonatal mortality, particularly uh, relative to to the birth weight. So actually, like the U.S. is is a pretty good place to have a low birth weight, uh, mm. low birth weight baby in terms of how they, how they do. But then in this period from a month to a year, we see, you know, huge differences open up between the U S and, and other, and other places, particularly among poor families. Hmm. Um, so that kind of suggests that there's something about the, the support that we're giving people not in the hospital, but, uh, but at home that, that must be, be contributing to this. Um, but that's, uh, that doesn't give us an, that doesn't give us an answer. And maternal mortality is something that, you know, I don't, um, I haven't studied that, that specifically. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. guess is that some of the same, you know, demographic issues are going to, are going to crop up. Maternal mortality is, is high in the U.S., although still fairly, you know, still quite in rare. Historical terms, yeah, quite, quite yeah. rare, yeah. Yeah. Um, one more chapter, I'm sure it's, you, you, my, my guess is the amount of feedback you get for that chapter uh, is disproportionate, would be the, the vaccination chapter in the book. And you note, uh, in that discussion, and, and I should just say for our audience, you're, you know, broadly pro-vaccination in there. Um, but you note that the odds of someone being anti-vaccination actually increases with education, it, which was a bit surprising to me in the sense that this book is predicated on the idea that better information will lead to better decision making. And I suppose education correlates with being better informed. Yes. Well, maybe about beer pong, at least. I, I don't know. But let's just stipulate it. Education means better information. But yet, better educated people are making a scientifically poorly informed choice to not vaccinate their their children. So, what gives? I don't know. Oh my god, I wish I understood. Um, so, I mean, I think this is this is like very puzzling in the sense that almost every other health outcome you look at, you know, obesity, heart disease, strokes, like cancer, you know, diabetes, basically any any short long term outcome that you look at, mm-hmm. more educated people do better. Hmm. So more educated people are just like healthier on every dimension. It's like one of the most robust relationships within the field of health economics, except for this thing <laughs> uh, where it seems like, you know, again, like health education seems to correlate with with a, a smaller rate of uh, of vaccination, uh, even though this is a clearly a good idea. And and it's you know, it's, it's actually the, the demographics I think are kind of, are, are, are mixed in the sense that, uh, that there are also pockets of, of poorly educated people who don't, who don't have, uh, who aren't vaccinated. And mm-hmm. so you see sort of this, um, this kind of like these kind of two groups or two just multiple different pockets of, of who is not, who is not vaccinated. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't really understand what the, um, what the issue is. I think that, you know, there are certainly people who believe that vaccines are, um, are dangerous and are, you know, going to cause issues. And I've talked to some of those people and I don't really understand. I still, even after those conversations, have a, a very poor understanding of, of kind of what the, uh, what the, the real, the real issues are. And I think without that, it's like hard to think about why those are cropping up more and more educated people. So you're an academic economist. You're you know very active in your field, writing lots of you know um, well-regarded uh, uh, papers for an academic audience. 
so why parenting books? I mean, it takes time out from the, you know, uh, publish or perish uh, regime of academic publishing. And while writing two New York Times bestsellers is a reward in and of itself, that wouldn't have been, I would suggest, the most obvious outcome when you started this whole process. So what compelled you to say, you know, I'm going to take time out from academic publishing and write these books? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the the first book I, I was really like a, I, I don't know, I don't know, passion project is like too, too strong a, a word. But you know, I got pregnant. And I was just like, Oh, my goodness, I cannot believe how frustrating this experience is. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I started kind of doing all of this research, like really, in the service of my own uh, of my own pregnancy and just sort of finding myself like basically like every evening and weekend, like looking up papers and, and you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, what was the right prenatal testing and kind of going through the statistics. And um, and and so I think that that the, the book there, the sort of first book really came out of um, came out of that. And I, I, you know, why exactly I decided to to write it in a book? I'm not you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I've always really enjoyed the the challenge of you know explaining these kind of things to um to you know people who are not like professional economists it's part of why i like teaching um and it's you know it's a kind of writing that i like to do and so i you know i sort of thought oh, I'll, I'll try to do this a little and then it kind of hmm. got into to being more than um more than a little um and you know i think i didn't think too much at the at the time about uh the the professional consequences, which was probably, um, you know, a mistake, um, but <laughs> okay. Um, such as, such as life. Um, and, you know, then, uh, so then I wasn't, you know, did have some pretty significant professional consequences that were not positive. Um, the first book. And then, you know, so then I wasn't actually sure about writing, um, writing a second book, but you know, it's, it's why it took so long. Um, but eventually I kind of realized that, you know, in, in spite of the, the professional downsides, the, the sort of social value upside was was big, right? So you know my uh, my most cited paper has 800 citations in Google Scholar. Um, it's about using selection, like using it's about econometric methodology, mm. and like that's you know that's that's great. That's like, great I, for know, that. Yeah, that's a, that's like a good was like a well cited paper. A lot of people you know use it for their papers, whatever. Um, you know, but I've sold like I don't know. A hundred thousand, a bit more than a hundred thousand of the first book, um, and so that that like the the sort of scope of impact that I can have is is much different. And although I very much enjoy helping people improve their political economy papers by addressing selection on unobservables, you know, getting to be the privilege of getting people to to sort of have a better experience of of pregnancy or uh, or childbirth or raising their kids, that that's like a sort of a different scale of of impact. And I think ultimately. I that that was what drew me to writing um, to writing the second book. Also, I actually really, really like writing these books. Um, like I just like really enjoy it. Um, and so now I now I have tenure and I can do the stuff that I that I like a little bit. So I, I mentioned earlier, you and your husband, Jesse Shapiro, both economists, your parents are two prominent economists, uh, Sharon Oster, Ray Fair. How much of a difference did growing up in a house full of economists making your your upbringing and do you see any similar effects on your kids i know this is anecdotes of just you but yeah yeah i mean i i do think that some of the sort of facility like some of what i try to to i think is useful in these books is that my i tend to think about things like my parenting or things like outside of 
of my job through the lens of economics mm. and the kind of like economics of the everyday um, is very prominent in my in my world. Um, and I think that is partly because of my childhood. You know, my parents, it's not that they were like coming home to like tell us about economics research, but, you know, the, the ways that they made choices mo- mostly were grounded in kind of basic economics principles. Mm. Um, and so that the kind of idea that like the answer to like, why don't we go grocery shopping is, you know, why do we have our groceries delivered was like, well, you know, my opportunity cost of time is very high, Hmm. which was the answer I got from my mom. That was like, that was like, (laughs) okay, yeah, that's the answer. You know, like, yeah, of course, Uh, obviously it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, And so I think that that did influence, um, you know, it made me interested in economics and so on, but I think it, it actually probably influences the the book stuff even more than my, than my job. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of my own kids, like, you know, I don't think they're that interested in economics. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we do t- like talk about economics a, a little bit, um, but not actually that much. And I will say like, you know, my daughter's like way more interested in like biology kind of stuff than she is in, than she is in economics. I try to like tell her things about economics research and it's like, yeah, that's enough things. You know, it's just like, I don't want to hear about this. Uh, so we'll see. Well, Emily... Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And for all of our listeners, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.